All right, we're looking at chapter 2, verses 6 to 8 this afternoon. And let's begin by giving attention to the reading of the passage itself so we have the language and imagery in our minds. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, I want to point out very briefly, and in Cusio here, which includes the phrase, in him, that you see in verse 6, and then uh, folds the next section into itself with concluding in him in verse 15, although many of your translations read through him in verse 15. So we're dealing with a large unit here, which is signaled by that Uh, in him or in Christ uh, imagery or language of verse 6 and in him meaning in Christ in verse 15. So there's a a large framed incusio. But we're only going to look at verses 6 to 8 this time because of the way Paul has articulated his statement in that sixth verse. We want to begin there to exploit his grammatical and what I believe is his theological point. So this is not just an esoteric academic exercise uh, in grammar and theology. The grammatical articulates the theological as the theological dramatizes the grammatical. Now, the grammar includes two moods of the Greek verb, also moods that we have in English, though Greek has a few more moods than we do in English. We basically have three moods in English grammar, the indicative, the imperative, and the subjunctive. But we're looking at particularly the indicative and imperative moods. And the indicative mood of the verb in Greek and in English is the mood of fact, the state of reality. So that's what the indicative indicates. It's indicative of the facts of the matter. It can also, I should say, be used for a question. But here we're looking at statements of the apostle. The imperative mood is the mood of command, the imperative command, the imperative mandatory command. So those are the two basic moods. Uh, which <clears throat> dominate uh, most of English grammar as all uh, <clears throat> Romance languages derived from Latin and Greek. <clears throat> so let's take a look at verse 6, and let's see if you can pick out the verb which is in the indicative mood. Judy, what do you think is the verb in verse 6 that's in the indicative mood?
his walk in the indicative mood? Christina, what do you think? Walk is in the imperative mood. So what verb is in the indicative? Received, correct. All right, so received is indicative. Walk is imperative. Now, that's a fact of the state of existence. You, Colossians, received Christ. It is a fact that Christ was offered to you, Colossians, for your reception. Now, who offered Christ to the Colossians? Ben? It wasn't Paul, was it? Because in the first verse of this second chapter, he said he had never seen them. Epaphras, yes, Epaphras. And how did they receive Christ? How does anyone receive Christ? By by grace. Very good, at least. Very good. So, they received Christ by grace through... Faith. Good. All right. Now, what did grace offer them? It offered them the indicative facts. The fact of Christ in his life. The fact of Christ in his death. The fact of Christ in his resurrection. They received all of that in receiving Christ. In other words, they received the fact of the narrative of Christ's dramatic work of redemption. They received the story of Christ's narrative. And that includes what we've referred to as the litany of the new creation from chapter 1. They received the fact of the light of the inheritance of the saints. Very much like the glory light that burst upon Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. So the facts... The indicative facts of the state of reality and existence for Paul, for the Colossian Christians, for Christ's own indicative state. They received, in fact, the kingdom of light and glory of the beloved Son of the Father. They received, in fact, deliverance from the domain of darkness in which they had been dwelling. These are all indicative facts of what they had received in receiving Christ. They received, in fact, redemption from bondage to the powers of this world, as well as the forgiveness of sin. You notice that I'm going through that litany of the new creation of the first chapter in order to indicate more of this indicative state, this indicative condition of the Colossians' and Paul, and even Christ himself. They received the blessings of the firstborn of the new creation in receiving Christ Jesus himself, who is that firstborn, together with the blessings of the firstborn from the dead. They received life from the dead, in fact, in the Easter person. 
Life as everlasting as that Easter person's everlasting life. It is the fact. It is the indicative fact of Christ's resurrection that he has risen into everlasting life in body-soul union. And they belong to that dimension. They belong to that person. These facts and more were received by them in receiving Christ Jesus, their Lord. The mood of these indicative facts is there in receiving the indicative Christ. All right, now, look how Paul places this sequence literally in this sixth verse. He places received on the other side of walk. He places the indicative on the other side of the imperative. And how does he join those two in his phrase, in his statement? He joins the indicative and the imperative with Christ the Lord or in him. So the relationship between the indicative imperative is an inseparable conjunction in Paul's grammar and in Paul's theology. The Colossians are commanded to walk consistent with the fact of their receiving Christ. It is imperative that the lifestyle of the Colossian Christians match the facts of the Christ whom they received. This is mandatory. This is not a recommendation. It is an apostolic demand. It is not an option. It is a biblical imperative. Walk as those who have, in fact, received Christ Jesus. And that united paradigm, in other words, that paradigm of union between the indicative imperative is very well demonstrated in this statement of the apostle. He places Christ as the glue, the uniting person, between the indicative state of fact and the imperative act of obedience. They are inseparable, even as Christ himself is inseparable, inseparable without, with respect to the facts of his indicative state and the imperatives of <clears throat> keep my commandments. You get the point here. Paul is placing a theological drama in a grammatical sequence. A theological drama which is essential to the Colossians' Christian state and maturity and walk or lifestyle. The connection is through a person. The connection is not through a doctrine per se. The connection is not through the law, per se. The connection is not through an ideology, per se. The connection is through a person. That which connects you to the facts of Christ's life is the indicative state of his own existence. In him, you are connected to that state of his life. But that state results in his own keeping his Father's commandments and his imperative on you that you keep his commandments. It is not an option. 
It is not something you can take or leave at leisure. Your union with Christ binds you to that relationship. It binds you to the mandatory as well as the indicatory. That's what Christ's life was bound into. His very own earthly life was bound into the indicative facts of his wonderful work of redemption and the obligations or mandates that result from that, the lifestyle that he lived. Remember, your Savior never broke a commandment of God. Never. He was inseparably bound to the indicative reality of his Father's wonderful love and compassion. Now, we fall far short. I understand that. But this is the appeal. This is the apostles teaching you what is this relationship that is in front of you? What is the relationship that is open to you? What is the relationship that you are striving for? What is the relationship out of which you live? Notice what I've said in that statement underneath the literal sequence. There is an inseparable conjunction between indicative fact of being fill in the blank, being what? In Christ, very good, in him. And concomitant, what's concomitant mean? Follows, accompanies, consequence. The concomitant or consequent moral imperative of acting fill in the blank. In Christ, very good. Inseparable. This is an inseparable bond. This is an inseparable relationship. Even as it's inseparable in Christ himself. So that relation between the indicative fact and the imperative act. The relation between the indicative fact and the imperative act is in Christ. Union between the indicative and imperative is the same here, as it is throughout all of Scripture, or I should say, it is the same throughout all of Scripture as it is here. Paul is not atypical. He is not anachronistic. He is typical of the biblical paradigm of what it means to be one with God, united with God by faith through grace, one with Christ by grace through faith, by <coughs> grace in faith. And the imperatives of the divine mandate, divine mandates, the divine commandments, the divine demands. You have been saved by grace in the power of God through the work of his redemption. It is mandatory upon you, demanded to be in you, required in you that you have no other gods before him. That you do not take his name in vain. That you do not dishonor his Sabbath. That you do not commit murder, nor adultery, nor fornication, nor stealing, etc. In Christ means not in these works of darkness. In Christ means you are united to the one who kept all of those mandates. And so you walk in those mandates in him, rejoicing in his commands as you delight 
in being indicatively united to the facts of his redeeming work. This is an inseparable relationship, unbreakable, and is to be nourished and devoted to, not only by the Colossian Christians, but by all Christians. All right, now, this book, this epistle, actually uses this relationship between the indicative and imperative a number of times. But I want to look at chapter 3 for a moment to point out a rather dramatic and spectacular underscoring of this relationship. So if you'll turn to chapter 3, verse 3. We're going to ask the question once again. In chapter 3, verse 3, where is the indicative verb? You have died, and what else? Okay. You were going to say that? You want to say any more than that? Your life is hidden, and where's the union? With Christ in God. With Christ. Here's, here's a double union. With Christ in God. So there's the indicative. There's the union. Where's the imperative? You have to glance down to verse 8, because he's doing indicatives all the way down, 4, 5, and 6. But in verse 8, now he signals the imperative. What verbs there in the imperative mood? Put aside. And you'll notice also verse 9. What would you guess is the mood of that verb? That's an imperative fellow. Do not lie. Okay. All right. So, once again, although he doesn't use a uh, union language uh, in the imperative part of this uh, chapter, it is understood that that imperative is with Christ in God as it was in verse 3. Now, I said this is a spectacular or a stunning declaration. You have died with Christ and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life if you have died together with Christ, is hidden with Christ, but not just with Christ, with Christ in God. Does that not amaze you? Does that not stun you to contemplate such an indicative reality? That he would hide your life in God himself, in God Almighty, in God everlasting, in God in whom there is no death. That your life in Christ, through Christ, by means of Christ, would be hidden with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. With such a sweet union, 
How could you commit adultery, immorality, fornication, anger, slander, abusive speech? Your life is hidden with God. There is no slander, adultery, fornication, immorality with God. God is perfectly holy. And the complete opposite of all of those sins of darkness and sins of the flesh. Your life is hidden with Him. Let that encourage your walk. Let that encourage your obedience. Let that encourage your duty. Let that encourage your doing the commandments. Not out of some moralistic screwing yourself up to greater uh, commendation, but folding yourself down into the God who has hidden you in himself, united you to himself through his Son. Let that motivation encourage you are doing the commandments, obeying the mandates, performing the duties. Let it encourage your thinking about what you should be doing as a Christian with respect to obedience and duty. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. What would that arena and dimension require of you? What would you be doing if you were standing in that arena? You're already hidden in it. Think of yourself standing before that throne of God. And now, what do you do? How do you behave? What do you say? What do you watch? All of those things informing your character, your moral character, Because my life has been hidden with Christ in God. In God. How can I do this thing if my life is hidden in God? How can I blow three people away on the streets of Fresno, California, if my life is hidden with Christ in God? How can I sit in front of a pornographic computer screen if my life is hidden with Christ in God? I cannot do it. You couldn't do it in heaven. You can't do it here. You see this significance of this union motif. Joined to the indicative power of the saving grace Of Jesus Christ, you've died with him. That power is in you. You're dead to that. Because he's hidden you in himself. Even as he has joined you to himself in his son. Well, there's one more thing to consider here. And that's the absence 
of this proper balance. We've been talking about how this verse, verse 6, gives us this proper balance between indicative and imperative. In in chapter 3, although it's not one verse, it's several verses apart, but nonetheless that balance between the indicative and imperative is also seen there in 3.3 and 3.8 and 9. But what about the imbalance? What happens if there is an imbalance without the indicative fact, for instance? What if there's no emphasis upon the facts of the state of the work of Christ? That only the imperative exists. Only imperative commands. What's the imperative without the indicative? What do we have in that case? Moralism, another word. Legalism, very good. We'd have legalism. We'd have moralism. We would have formalism. That is, the forms are important. Going through the rituals. Roman Catholicism, to a hilt. Judaism, to a hilt. The form of religion. Mandatory works. Works righteousness. Without the indicative humanism. Moralism. Liberalism. All liberal systems. Social, theological, moral, political, economic, all liberal systems are based upon no indicative. No Christian indicative. They're based on imperative duties, imperative works, imperative social justice campaigns, the imperatives of doing, not being united, in which case Christ becomes only a symbol and not a reality. For virtually all of those religious groups reject all of the reality of the Orthodox Jesus. No, he's not God. No, he's not divine. No, he didn't rise from the dead. No, his death on the cross is not an atoning death. All of them subtract all of that indicative fact from the Jesus of history. Well, on the other side, what exists without the imperative act? In other words, all indicative and no imperative. What do you have then? Antinomianism, very good. Idealism. And hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of emphasizing an indicative state as some kind of arrival without an imperative behavior. So overemphasizing grace alone that works are worthless. James says faith without works is dead. It's no faith at all. The works are inseparably bound. But overemphasizing the imperative act 
with overemphasizing indicative fact leads to that kind of antinomianism. And in fact, it has broken out at various times in the church's history, particularly in the 17th century during the Puritan movement, the antinomian reaction, and even in this 20 and 21st century in the uh, overreaction in dispensationalism, the antinomianism of dispensationalism. All right, now, I want to ask one final question on this grammatical exercise. How does Paul's narrative biography relate to verse 6? What do you say? Art, what do you say? How did Paul's narrative biography relate to this verse? He had received Christ, hadn't he? It was his story, was it not? And more than he'd received Christ? You want to say more, Art? He walked in him. Oh, you missed the binding part. You missed the middle. Go ahead. You can redeem yourself. He was united to him. For he's having received him and then walked in union with him as well. All right, so all of this is autobiographical. Paul is reflecting on something that the Colossians had received because it was something he could receive. In other words, I have something in common with you, even though I haven't seen your face, even though I've never been to Philemon's house church, nonetheless, I can say... This is what you have experienced, because this is what I experienced. Upon experiencing the reception of Christ, which occurred where? On the Damascus Road, he immediately could walk as a Pharisaic Jew no more. In Christ, no more Jewish Phariseeism. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He says that. But on the Damascus Road, it died. That died because he was alive to Christ. Immediately, his life was Christ, in Christ, and not in the law. Not in the law of Jewish traditions. He was joined not to the works of the law, but to the Christ of grace. Not to the dead letter, but to the life of resurrection from the dead through Christ Jesus, his risen Lord and Savior. In an instant, he was transformed. In the blink of an eye. He was transformed. In the blink of that glory light that he saw, he knew his Judaism was over. And only Christ and nothing but Christ would fill his soul. Even to the point of of meditating and being taught directly by him in the deserts of Arabia. Arabia. More. Longing for more of Christ, even in that solitary existence. 
And these epistles, these brilliant letters that we have from his pen are an evidence of that immense passion for the Christ that he met on that Damascus road and his sweet union with the Savior and that crucial element, which is the pivot point around which his whole life moved, his union with Christ, binding him to the indicative facts of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and leading him to walk as a mirror reflection of that life. Any questions? Comments? All right, now we come to verse 7, which contains four participles, expanding upon what it means to, what do you think? Fill in the blank. Yes, the walking Christ. Very good. Now, let's take them seriatim. Let's take them one at a time. And let's begin with the one rooted. And ponder what appears to be an incongruity. How do you walk if you're rooted? Particularly if you're rooted like some trees with very deep, sinuous roots that go down 10, 20, 30, sometimes 50 feet and more into the ground. No, Paul isn't. Uh, silly here. The walk that he's describing, as we've already used the term, is the lifestyle, Christian lifestyle. It's the lifestyle of the Christian believer. And here he's referring to the activity of that lifestyle rooted in Christ, in union with Christ essentially. But that lifestyle he's underscoring, needs deep roots. Roots which wrap around Christ Jesus, are sinewed around Christ Jesus, and all his facets, his marvelous person, his saving work, his deep-rooted, indwelling presence. Notice what Paul had said In the previous chapter, verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. There are deep roots. So this participle being rooted in Christ is not a a silly incongruity, which uh, doesn't match up with the word walk in the previous verse. It is an attempt to remind them that they are deeply, deeply wrapped up In their union with Christ, they're deeply wrapped up in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, even in his glorification. That union expands itself into a realization of how deep the roots of union with Christ go. 
Now, the second participle here is the word or the phrase built up. Now, how are they built up? Well, the same way that deeply rooted things are built up. They need nurture. They need food. And the food here is the word of Christ. Here is your diet. Your diet as a Christian is eating the word of God, like Ezekiel. Devouring the meat and drink of the supper with Christ. In Christ, building up your strength. In Christ, building up your resistance to temptation with the milk and meat of the word of truth. Truth who is Christ himself, the word of Christ itself. In other words, being built up means being nourished and strengthened in that union with Christ. To all of that power that flows from him to those that are in him by the grace of the Holy Spirit. All right, that makes us, that gets us halfway through the participles. So we'll take a break and we'll come back to pick up number three. All right, now the third participle is established in the faith, which presupposes the previous two rooted and built up, wrapped around and nurtured, now here in confidence, synonym of faith, trust, synonym of faith, reliance, synonym of faith, on Christ, in Christ, with Christ, to use prepositional phrases that keep Christ at the center, once again, of this sweet union. Faith established unites to Christ securely, confidently, wonderfully, assuredly. So this union with Christ in walking with him is through faith, which joins your life to his by believing, trusting, receiving, feeding on Christ, in Christ. A wonderful marriage, a wonderful marriage of believer and savior in this union. Now the last participle is overflowing in gratitude. It's obviously part of being joined to Christ, being in Christ, being with Christ, for who would not, in realizing the pit from which they've been rescued, the well-deserved damnation from which they've been redeemed, would not overflow with thanksgiving or gratitude. Would you not? Would you not with the Colossian Christians? Would you not from your sweet union with Christ in Christ yourself? Would you not overflow with thanks be to God for Christ and grace and faith and the food of heaven? Would you not follow Paul in this letter? When he uses the word for gratitude or thanksgiving seven times, seven times, verses 3 and 12 of chapter 1, this verse 7 of chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17 of chapter 3, and verse 2 of chapter 4, seven times.
calls sevenfold thanksgiving. His sevenfold thanksgiving for Christ in Christ spread across this letter beginning in 1-3, ending in 4-2, encapsulating the in-between two and three chapters. The apostle overflows with gratitude because he overflows with joyous thanks to be in Christ. To be in Christ, not in Judaism. To be in Christ, not in the law. To be in Christ, not in the dead works of worthless ritualism. To be in Christ, not out of Christ. There's where the heart rejoices. Rejoices with thanks and praise forevermore. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, thanks be unto God. Surely your hearts resonate with that acclamation. Now I've placed on your outline a suggestion that this seventh verse has in mind the errorists, that is, those who are spreading error in this Colossian congregation. Paul alluded to them in verse 4 up above in this second chapter. We talked about them using enticing arguments or persuasive words. How are the errorists potentially in the background of what he says here in verse 7? Think of it this way. The grounding in Christ or union with Christ with the concomitant walk in Christ out of that union makes the appeal of the errorists of no effect and no attraction to them if this union with Christ is maintained and confidently believed and exercised in the walk of the Christian lifestyle. Which means that whatever they are doing, whatever these errorists are doing, they are adding to Paul's and Epaphras' in Christ instruction. In Christ is not enough for them. In Christ is not sufficient for them. Be like saying in grace is not enough. You have to add the works of the ritual penitential system of the Roman Catholic Church. In Christ is not enough. You have to add a form of baptism. If you're not immersed, you're not saved. Yes, there are whack-brained Protestants who say that kind of thing. In Christ is not enough. You have to add the watchtower tract. You have to have the Mormon revelation. You have to add something to it. You have to add social justice to it. You have to be an activist. Notice here, whatever it is philosophy or human traditions or the elemental powers, whatever they are adding to the in Christ gospel of Paul, Paul is saying here, it will not capture you. It will not return you to bondage to the vain systems of alien doctrine and teaching out of which, from which you have been instructed to leave that 
behind and walk in union with Christ whom you have received. Which brings us to verse 8 and what Paul means by the language of this very challenging verse. We want to begin with the word philosophy. And you'll notice how on the outline I have an equal sign with a cross or a diagonal over it. What does that symbol mean? Not equal. equal. Very good. All right. So what is Paul not talking about here when he uses this word philosophy? Let's begin with the negative, the so-called via negationis. What is he not talking about when he's talking about philosophy here? I, I didn't hear the word. What philo- what's the word before philosophy? True philosophy. Okay. <clears throat> mm, okay. He's not talking about what philosophy? Formal philosophy. He's not talking about formal Greco-Roman philosophy. Who's a philosopher that you know about, Terry? Plato. Very good. And who's Plato's famous disciple? Art? Aristotle. Aristotle is Plato's famous disciple. And what other philosophy systems were part of Greek society? Paul meets them on Mars Hill. Acts 17:18 Epicureanism and Stoicism Paul was aware of that <clears throat> was he aware of Plato and Aristotle that we can't answer but he did encounter the Epicureans and the Stoics <clears throat> in Athens All right now <clears throat> it is not <clears throat> these formal philosophical systems that he is describing by this word here He's not talking about Greek philosophy. What about Roman philosophy? What famous Roman philosophers are there? Aha. That's a little more challenging, isn't it? Actually, Cicero and Seneca, we usually think of as orators, were philosophers. In fact, they were severe severe critics of Greek philosophy. So there is a Roman system of philosophy, though it is certainly not as developed and articulate, at least not in the West until Augustine, and then it's a Christian form of Latin or Roman philosophy. So my point here is to indicate you're not associating Paul here with this word, with Plato's system, Aristotle's system, Epicurus's system, or the system of the Stoics, or any other Greco-Roman philosopher. That is not what he's talking about. Well, what does he mean? He means what the word literally says. Philosophia. Love of wisdom. That's what the, that's what the Greek word means literally in its etymology. You can break it apart into those two uh, parts, love of wisdom, philosophia. You'll notice he's used wisdom in verse 3 of this second chapter. 
And he will use it five other times in this letter. Verse 9 and 28 of chapter 1, verse 16 of this third chapter, and verse 5 of chapter 4. So wisdom is something that the apostle loves, though it is not the formal wisdom of Greco-Roman philosophical paradigms. All right, now, this philosophy, which he is describing, this love of wisdom, which he is describing, page two of your outline, is described in three according to prepositional phrases. First of all, it is according to what? What's the first according to in the verse? Human tradition, tradition of men. Okay. Now, you'll notice I placed a blank parenthesis before that. What do you want to put in that blank? I'm doing that to make it explicit. Is he positive or negative about human tradition? He is negative. So we want to put a negative in there, in that parenthesis. The love of wisdom, the philosophy, is not according to human tradition. So that's what I'm doing with the parentheses. Okay? What's the second according to prepositional phrase there in that verse? According to the elementary principles. Okay. The second one is according to the elementary principles. What are we going to put in the parenthesis before that? Negative. Not. And what's the final according to? According to Christ. And what are we going to put in the parenthesis there? But, very good, very good. All right, so, the sequence of what he's negating, I am encouraging you not to be deceived by vain philosophy. I am encouraging you to be on guard against human tradition, elementary principles, and I want you to embrace that love of philosophy, love of wisdom which comes in accordance with Christ. All right, let's begin then with human tradition. Not according to human tradition. I don't want you to love the wisdom that comes from that. Well, let's put a but in here. What's the antithesis of the human tradition that he doesn't want them to be in bondage to or captured by? What does he want them to be captured by? The scripture. Not human tradition, but divine revelation. Especially the revelation of the hidden mysteries of God in Christ. We've been talking about these already. We've talked about them a little bit. What are these mysteries? They're the mysteries of the incarnation of the Son of God in his life, death, and resurrection which mystery is no longer hidden from Jew or Gentile. The invitation here then is to love this wisdom of God in Christ, which flows from the divine revelation. Love what is revealed in the revelation of his life, his death, his resurrection, your love of the wisdom of divine revelation and your faith wrapped around 
God in Christ. Your faith built up in feeding upon the milk and meat of the word of God in Christ, revealed to your soul, your hungry soul. Your love of wisdom from the divine revelation of the grace of faith, which establishes you, roots you firmly in Christ Jesus. The love of the wisdom of divine revelation, which overflows with joy in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of the Son of God on your behalf. And your love of the wisdom of filling up the measure of Christ's suffering as you are called to suffer for his name's sake. This wisdom, with which you are invited to love, transcends all human tradition because you lay hold of the eschatological wisdom, the wisdom of the mysteries of the ages. You lay hold of Christ Jesus, Son of God the Father, beloved God and the Holy Spirit, revealed to your mind and heart through the word of heaven contained in the inspired, inerrant, infallible scriptures. Love of wisdom comes from your love of the word of God. Love of wisdom comes from your love of what has been revealed from the very arena of God. What you are reading on the pages of this book we call the Bible are the very words of the living God. There is wisdom to love. What about these elementary principles? Well, where do we begin with the elementary principles? Hotly debated New Testament problem. One scholar calls it intractable. Intractable. Where would you begin to try to understand what Paul means by this phrase, stoikia in Greek, elementary principles? Christina, where would you begin? Ah, so you would begin with the world. Yes, all right, so notice the full phrase, the elementary principles of the world, which he repeats in Galatians 4, 3, and I want you to turn to that because I want you to note something about what he says in Galatians 4, about the stoichia there. Galatians 4, 3. We, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elementary, elemental things of the world. It's the same phrase that he uses here in Colossians 2. But it's that bondage that I'm interested in. Because in Galatians, he underscores the bondage which these elementary principles hold, these worldly elementary principles hold upon those that are subordinate to them or bound up by them. Notice here in verse 8, he uses the word captured. One scholar suggests it's like being kidnapped by them. That may be a little bit uh, uh, over the top, but the idea is 
that they are taken prisoner again. All right, so these elements and principles are horizontal principles. They are principles of the world, worldly principles. They are this-worldly, basic principles. They are not according to Christ principles. They are not vertical principles, not according to the realm of light which the saints inherit. They are not vertical principles according to the kingdom of the beloved Son of the Father, which is the kingdom of heaven. That's a vertical principle. They are not according to the new creation in Christ Jesus, of which he is the firstborn, and again, not according to the vertical or supernatural or eschatological dimension of divine revelation with narrative interface in which the Son of God, vertical person, takes on the history of man, horizontal incarnation. No, not this elementary principles of the world wisdom, which is truly foolishness, as he says in Corinthians but the wisdom in which and in whom all the treasures and riches of knowledge and understanding are possessed, realized, loved, and received. So these elementary principles are the principles of the pagan world. They are the principles of the world outside of Christ. They are the principles of the pagan world, ancient and modern, Ancient and modern. Oh, no, we are not so sophisticated in this 21st century that we have moved beyond paganism. It is erupting on your TV screens almost every day. For whether ancient or in modern times, there are only two worlds. The world of Christ Jesus and those in him and the world outside of Christ Jesus and those outside of him. Elementary principles of this world, not the world to come. Not the heavenly world, not the eschatological world. The eschatological axis is extremely important to understanding what the apostle is talking about here. Because it is that axis which penetrated in light upon that Damascus road and resurrection power which transformed him immediately. Elementary principles world is the world of only this world. No other world but this world. Any world other than this world is, according to the elementary principles, a myth. According to the elementary principles, any other world other than this world is a symbol. Any other world, according to the elementary principles, any other world is a mere figure. It is an invention. It is not a real world. It is an imaginary world. It is a fantastical world. It is a world of fantasy, not reality. The real world is this down and dirty world. That's the elementary principle paradigm. And the Colossian world, the Colossian world 
was the world of Greco-Roman paganism with its elementary principles. You remember how we reviewed in our opening lecture in this series the idolatry of the pagan cult, which was abroad in the streets and in the amphitheaters of Colossae. The immorality of pagan ethics, which was abroad in Colossae. The narcissism of the pagan pleasure principle, which was abroad in Colossae. The pagan cultural ethos, the pagan environment, the pagan society, the pagan entertainment. It was all there in Colossae. Don't be captured by it. Don't go back to it. Don't go back to those elementary principles of that pagan world and life view. You live in it. You were raised in it. You've been transferred out of it. You received Christ outside of it. Don't go back. Now, does that suggest that these errorists have have a system, a life view, a Weltanschauung, as they say in German, that they have a life view, world and life view, which is retreating back to paganism. That is conceivable. But there are some other elements that thicken the stew, so to speak, of what this means. And they will come out later in the middle of this second chapter. But at this point, it is certainly clear from the way the apostle uses the language here that there is no great intractable mystery about what he's talking about. He's talking about the culture and the ethos of the Colossian world, the Greco-Roman world, the world of pagan Greek and Roman culture and philosophy and and ethos and and entertainment, etc., 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 which is exactly what you would imagine him meaning by these terms. You've been taken out of that lifestyle. You've been taken out of that world. Christ Jesus has redeemed you from it. He's forgiven you of all the sins you committed in it. He has now become unto you the very fullness of the Godhead. For him, in verse 9, the very next verse, he says, The fullness of deity is revealed in him bodily. I saw him. I saw him in his bodily resurrected form. I testify to you that this is what you've been delivered into and out of those marble shrines, those bronze and gilded statues, whatever other altars you may have in your city to these gods who are no gods at all. These elementary principles world is the antithesis of Christ's world, the antithesis of Christ's vertical world, Christ's supernatural world, Christ's heavenly world. Their world is natural, earthly, non-eschatological. His world is supernatural, heavenly, and eschatological. Now, I don't want to carp here about the eschatology of paganism. Because paganism does have an eschatology. It has an absoluteness. And that absoluteness is death and is finality. It's all over. There's nothing beyond it. 
You have very sophisticated modern pagans who revive and pride themselves in broadcasting that gospel. There's nothing beyond this world. There is an eschatology of death, and that is it. It's all over. Nothing more. So there is an eschatology in that sense, but it is not an eschatology of fruition, not an eschatology of hope. It is not an eschatology of reality. It is not an eschatology of either heaven or hell. But I don't mean to carp about that. My emphasis here is upon this horizontal and vertical axis because these elementary principles are horizontal only and not vertical at all. Well then, what is Paul encouraging his readers to realize when he says that they are not to be captured by these principles? What are they to be captured by? Well, they're to be captured by that which is according to Christ. They're to be captured by that which is in union with Christ. They're to be captured by that vertical dimension, that dimension that draws them into relationship with the Christ of glory, the Christ of heaven, the Christ of eternity. That means you have to know who he is. And Paul, in that very next verse, declares that he is very God, of very God. He is the fullness of deity or Godhead in human form. You deny the deity of Christ. You deny the fact that the Son of God is part of the Trinity, that Jesus of Nazareth is one of the persons of the triune God. You deny that. You have no vertical dimension. You have no union with eternity. You have no heaven orientation. You have nothing but the flat line of the horizon which ends in death. The deity of Christ is absolutely essential. It's absolutely essential. Without that, there is no Christianity. I don't care what they say about who he is. I don't care what they say about what he's done. I don't care what they say about how great an example he is. If he's not God, he's an imposter. If he's not God, he's a liar. If he is not who he says he is, he's bearing false witness. As C.S. Lewis once said, you don't patronize me by talking about Jesus of Nazareth being a good person. He's not a good person if he claims to be God and he isn't. Right? If he isn't God but he claims to be God, he's not a good person. But if he is who he says he is, you better fall down and worship. You better bend your knee. You better say, Lord Jesus, save me. Save me. Being taken captive to Christ is being a beloved captive to his acts, his marvelous works on your behalf. His act of being the firstborn of the new creation, granting you life in the new creation. His act of being the firstborn from the dead, giving you resurrection life or life from the dead in Christ, who is the resurrection and the life being taken captive to Christ is being a beloved captive to his narrative biography. He is the light of glory, the light of the world. He has brought you into his life out of your darkness. The dark night of your soul is over, for in him there is no darkness, no darkness anymore. 
He is the redeemer of your soul, your heart, your life. There is no more bondage to the elementary principles of the world in him. He's released you from that. He is freedom from this worldly bondage so that you may be free and liberated as a bond servant of the Son of the Father by the Spirit in his world. Now, there is a real bondage to rejoice in. The irony of being not bound and in bondage to this world's elementary principles, but being a joyous bond servant, a slave, as Paul calls it, a slave of Jesus Christ. Redeemer and Lord. He has become to us the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30 And all the riches of wisdom are hidden in Him. He is the hidden wisdom of God predestined before the ages for our glory. 1 Corinthians 2.7 A hidden wisdom and a hidden mystery no more. No more hidden as in ages past, but now fully revealed, uncovered, openly displayed in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus evidenced to be the Son of God in power and glory by his resurrection from the dead. He is not here. He is risen. The dark tomb is empty, empty with the transfigured glory light of the firstborn from the dead. The evidence solving the mystery is overflowing with treasures of the fullness of the times. No waiting for God's intervention in history. That rich treasure has been poured out in Bethlehem, in Nazareth, at Calvary's Hill, in a resurrection garden. Treasures of might and power evidentially displayed in wonders of heavenly majesty at Cana and the wedding there, at Gadara and the demon-possessed man there, at Bethany and Lazarus' tomb there, riches of grace, abundance of grace and mercy, evidentially displayed in Mary Magdalene, Zacchaeus, the thief on the cross, Saul of Tarsus, the Colossian Christians of Philemon's house church, treasures not hidden in mystery, but treasures hidden with God in Christ. Treasures openly offered to you so as to hide you, yes, to hide you and me in the full reality of the riches of God in Christ by the Spirit. (coughs) The final irony is this. We become the hidden treasures. In Christ, we become the hidden treasures, for in Christ, he is the beloved treasure of the Father before the foundation of the world. From before the foundation of the world, a hidden mystery, now revealed clearly to you who possess the person and life of that mystery, you who possess the beloved Son of the Father by the mystical union of the Holy Spirit. There is the answer to the sweet mystery, union with Christ, the wisdom of God. That is the solution to the mystery. That union is inseparably mirrored in the union of the indicative and imperative in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, these are wonderful declarations of your revelation and indicative reality. You are pleased to take us 
into relationship with him by the bond of being united to Christ with our life hidden with you in him? What have we done to deserve such grace? Oh, we've been worthy of the least of these blessings. We are not worthy. We have done nothing. We are worthy only of condemnation. And yet, Lord, you marvelously draw us into the drama of the life of your Son, into the drama of the life of heaven through the life of your Son, seated at your right hand in glory. You marvelously draw us into the wisdom of God who is Christ Jesus. And so, you take us captive to him and redeem us and release us from the captivity of the human traditions and elementary principles of this world. These are encouragements that our faith needs, Lord, in these days. In these days of the resurgence of paganism in our own culture, in our land, in our own world. We need to realize that we've been captured by a different world. We have been taken prisoner by a different Lord. We have been redeemed by a different master. He is life from death. He is life everlasting from even everlasting death. He is what our hearts, our lives so desperately need. And we pray that we might be nurtured, rooted, established, built up, strengthened in all the riches of Christ Jesus, which are now hidden in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.